Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, here with you as usual. Taylor will be joining me in just a second. Before we get started, just want to say thank you to our newest patrons. Uh, We've got Nicole and Wesley to thank this week, so thanks for supporting the show, and we hope you enjoy all the bonus material that's up there for you. So yeah, I'll bring in Taylor here. Taylor, how's it going? Oh, not too bad. How about yourself? I'm doing fairly well. Yeah, Excellent. Excellent. Going going good. What have you been up to? Oh, not a whole lot. Uh, Let's see. What did we do today? Today we had a birthday party for my oldest kid, so that was fun. It was a good time. Little family time is always nice. I don't know. It got stormy this afternoon. We actually had like a sudden tornado warning. And then before you know it, it was sunny again. So it was really weird. But uh, Hmm. I don't know. It's been a fun day overall. Been enjoying some family time. It's always nice. As far as other things going on, what we're doing right now, I'm drinking a glass of Campo Viejo Tempranillo. It's good. It's uh, not super sweet. It's nice and fruity. It could I usually like a little drier red, um, but it's very good. And it's also from Spain. So I felt that was pertinent to our story today. Nice. I'm drinking. Uh, well, it isn't Kratom for the for the purposes <laughs> of the state of Wisconsin, but it's <laughs> very similar to it. A, a, a similar substance. Right. Um, as far as media stuff goes, um, I'm reading a good book right now. I think actually a book you just bought too. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. started it yet, but um, The Earth is Weeping by Peter Cousins. It's really good. It's a story, you know, kind of the settlement of the West, the wars with Native American peoples. It's a little dated. It's from 93. So some of the terminology is a little, it takes a little getting used to. They use the word Indian entirely. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've heard Native American used. Right. But um, it's still a good book. It's got a ton of good information. It's probably a pretty good starting point just to get familiar with the, the big players in that story mm-hmm. before you dive into some more, you know detailed stuff Mm -hmm. but it's really good it's a very fascinating read it's fun to kind of learn like you know who is crazy horse who is you know sitting bull and like you know you assume when you're a kid that it's really the good guys bad guys and everyone agrees but there's so much more to it going on and the different viewpoints even within the native american community of everything and you know why did the crow people fight with the army versus you know the the lakota who fought against it so it's very interesting learning why a lot of those things happened yeah, my copy arrived uh, the other day. I'm going to start that soon as well. Yeah, it's a great read. It's it's a great one for that. And then the uh, other thing I've been up to uh, last night, I finally caught up on what we do in the shadows. And I think their newest episode, The Pine Barrens, might be my favorite one of the entire series. It's awesome. You get to meet the Jersey Devil. And I'll leave it at that. This has been a good series. So yes. a good season so far. Uh, but yeah, uh, what about you? What you been up to? Katie and I started watching the series Marianne on netflix okay. it's a french language uh horror series french was enough of a horror just to learn for me so i had watched the first episode like a while ago and i liked it but i just didn't have my interest in watching something at the time and katie's been watching a lot of stuff to practice her french recently so that's kind of a perfect thing for both of us to check out so we started that and really enjoyed the first episode Nice. Um, how is your French? Are you subtitles or can you kind of listen in? I definitely need the subtitles, although French audio with French subtitles works pretty well. Mm-hmm. But in something like that, where it's it's a little bit faster and harder yeah. to understand, I definitely need the English subtitles for that. Cool. 
In addition to consuming media, I was given the chance to help in making some also. There, there you go. A little production, a little production of media. So on Tuesday of last week, I was able to record an episode with our friends Born Under Punches. Nice. Um, so a little improv comedy, a little bit of interview, a little bit of role playing games, you know, like D&D type stuff um, and some reading of fine literature. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be able to watch a little bit of that while I was at work on Twitch. It looked like a good time. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. I'm very grateful they had me on there. Uh, it's a cool show. Sarah from It Came From The Sea and Josie and Lucas from Australian Gothic have also been on episodes of that. So you can definitely go on YouTube and check out those. Um, I think the live stream version of the one I was on is is available to watch. And then there'll be kind of the edited versions coming out later. Uh, so, yeah, that's nice. exciting. I'm excited to see kind of the final product there. For sure. Oh, I got my my Beyond the Breakers t-shirt arrived today. I wanted to, ah, That's right. I saw that. Look great. I wanted to check those out as proof of concept and looks good. Feels good. I love it. Yep. Better, better than the big stickers. Yeah, we accidentally made the first stickers very, very large. We have fixed that issue. Yeah, uh, you can get a Dick the Freight Horse sticker. There's a few <laughs> different T-shirt designs. We'll be adding some more stuff to that. A good mug or two. Everyone loves mugs. So definitely check out the Teespring store. There, any time, there, who knows how much stuff we'll put on there. Anytime we're bored, we'll probably throw something on there just to. Mm-hmm see what we can create so right. yeah definitely check that out it's cool i, I was super happy with how the t-shirt came out mm-hmm. all right well i guess we have an episode to do sure let's do that instead of selling t-shirts all right so today we're going to be discussing a ship called the san pedro de alcantara i definitely made the right choice on which wine i'm drinking today yes so this episode is going to have a few historical sidetracks but ultimately it will all help in telling the story Okay. I kind of see our show as a bit of a historical buffet, you know, mm-hmm. we've always said that we're like the golden corral of podcasts. <laughs> Have we ever that said that? Instead of a chocolate wonderfall, you get a shipwreck at the end. So, yeah, we're going to have a little bit of a grab bag today, a little bit of everything in this episode. But it is all relevant, I promise. So San Pedro de Alcantara was a Spanish man-of-war outfitted with 64 guns. Nice. She'd been constructed in Cuba in 1770 to 1771. She was built from mahogany, which was really highly prized for its usefulness in shipbuilding in the Caribbean. I didn't really know this about mahogany, but it was, I guess, so highly prized that in the early 1600s, the Spanish crown declared a monopoly on it. Huh. I didn't know that either. They wanted all of it for ships. I just feel like mahogany is like the the crystal of wood or like the the gray poupon of, of <laughs> wood, right? Like everybody knows mahogany is nice wood, even if you don't know anything about wood. Like I know with like guitars, all that kind of stuff, like mahogany is always like a sought after thing. Right. Flooring. Yeah. So in addition to the Spanish Empire's many leather bound books, all of their <laughs> vessels did in fact smell of rich mahogany. God, they probably did have both together. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned, you know, she's got 64 guns. This isn't a huge ship for the time. You know, mm-hmm. right around this period, you see Spanish warships, you know, pretty routinely being built with 60, 70, 80 guns. Uh, some of these later being converted to have uh, numbers ranging up into the hundreds. Uh, you see some with 112, 120 guns coming out. 
So this this is pretty much your your standard run of the mill warship for Spain at the time. So to set the stage for this story, let's look at the state of Spain's empire at this point in history. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking late 1700s here. Okay, so so not the happy times. Yeah, what do you think about when you think of the Spanish Empire? Um, I guess with a little bit of like northern hemisphere bias, I think of them kind of interacting with the Aztecs. Um, That's a word for it. In <laughs> being out west in the southwest, um, California, um, was it Alto, California? That kind of stuff. I guess I think of that when when the good times, if you will, a lot of missions and a lot of um, oppression towards the native peoples and mm-hmm. a lot of forced conversion to Catholicism, all that kind of stuff. And then I think of it falling off in like the seventeen late what late seventeen hundreds. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my thoughts on the Spanish Empire. Yeah, I think that's a pretty standard mindset. And eventually, we're like, "Hey, give us the Philippines!" So, so we yeah. took those from them. Yeah, that's I think that's a pretty common way of thinking about Spain. You know, we especially in school, we learn about Spain conquering the Aztecs, conquering the Inca, all of that stuff in, you know, New Spain, uh, Peru, those types of things. And then as you as you kind of get an overview of world history, you kind of think of Spain falling off and being replaced kind of by France and mm-hmm. then France falling off, being replaced by Britain mm-hmm. and so on. They were really just teaching them how to farm and read, though. That's what I remember right. learning. That's the key thing to remember about <laughs> the Spanish Empire. After being a pretty much unmatched world power in the late 16th and into the early 17th century, Spain had definitely lost some of its prestige on the world stage. But not to the extent I feel like that that most people would think. I, th- I think you only think of it because you know how it ends, right? Like at the time... You don't know that the Spanish Empire is that close to being done, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's easy, like, looking back at it to be like, oh, yeah, everybody knew that, you know, they were like, they were the sick man of Europe at the time. It's almost more of a, a situation where Spain's not necessarily losing power so much as they're losing dominance. Right. Like, you have other powers rising to sort of match them at their level, you know, until like, you know, from the 1500s into the you know, the first third of the 1600s, you know, Spain not ju- not just has this big uh, invincible navy. They're also considered the greatest land power in Europe mm-hmm. until the the French, you know, sort of shatter that in the Thirty Years War. Yeah. And I feel like you also see like the English rise to power on the seas. So all of a sudden you're challenged at sea and you're challenged on land by two different people. Yeah, so it's like Spain, I mean, they're they're kind of the the big man on campus, so everyone's sort of gunning for them, like literally <laughs> in this case. But yeah, at this point other other powers are kind of stepping up and and Spain isn't quite the the dominant power they they have been in the past, but they're still a force to be reckoned with. You know, they may have lost some of that dominance, but they really haven't lost any of their territory. Uh, they they still have their possessions in the New World, you know, in Peru and Mexico, where they get all of their wealth from. Um, you know, they still have their land in the Philippines. They're really doing okay as far as world empires go. Right. Since 1700, Spain had been ruled by the Bourbon dynasty, beginning with Philip V. For those of you interested in dynastic power struggles, definitely read up on the War of the Spanish Succession. <laughs> A lot of you listening have probably 
seen pictures of Charles II of Spain, uh, the one who was nicknamed the Bewitched, kind of the final boss of Habsburg breeding. Good Lord, I'm looking at his portrait now. I wonder what he really looked like if this is the better version. Yeah, he was very sickly most of his life. So uh, when he was king of Spain, most of Europe was just kind of like sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for him to die because they knew that he wasn't going to leave an heir. When that finally happened, it caused some problems uh, in in Europe, namely a a nearly 15-year war, the War of the Spanish Succession. The main thrust of this is basically which European royal family is going to get their guy on the throne of Spain. Right. Louis XIV, he's sort of in his heyday right here. He wants to get his grandson, Philip, onto the throne of Spain. In the process, leaving him in the line of succession of the French throne. Okay. Louis XIV is basically scheming to unite France and Spain under one monarch, to which the rest of Europe basically says, absolutely the f*** not. (laughs) Because that would do terrible things to the balance of power in Europe. It's a weird war because basically either way it shakes out, there's going to be problems with the balance of power because the other claimant to the Spanish throne is Charles VI, the Holy Roman Emperor, which would have basically reunited the Habsburg lands with Spain. Uh, So either way, this is not going to stay balanced. Ultimately, after all that fighting, treaties are signed, agreeing that while, yeah, Philip V can become king of Spain, he had to be taken out of the French line of succession. That seems like a fairly decent compromise. Yeah, it's kind of the only way that that could have come to a a decent end. Although, obviously, there's more wars to follow here very shortly. Right. But that little bit is wrapped up. Kind of a neat little solution saying you can be king of Spain, but you cannot also be king of France. Not going to fly fun little factoid with philip v of spain um this first bourbon king of spain he actually got to be king twice huh he did the old grover cleveland i was gonna say he's a he's a grover cleveland king uh in january 1724 mm-hmm. uh, philip v abdicated the throne in favor of his eldest son louis philip was only 40 at the time so really not for you know age or health reasons just because Presumably, he didn't want to be king anymore, and he wanted his son to have a lot of time to do so. Philip only got to enjoy his retirement for about seven months, uh, at which point the 17-year-old Louis died of smallpox. Wow. (laughs) So much death already in this episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we haven't even gotten on the ship yet. (laughs) So Philip, he got back up there on the horse for another 22 years, uh, and he was succeeded by his other son, Ferdinand. Do you think Ferdinand was ever like, hey, I can do it now? And he's like, no, no, you're waiting. It is kind of interesting, like something that you quit doing, like of your own volition, and then to have to go back and do it, and you do it for 22 more years. Yeah, like I would assume at a certain point, like when Ferdinand was like 20 or something, you'd be like, hey, here's the keys. I want to, you know, no, no, not do no. this. Maybe he wasn't confident in Ferdinand. <laughs> so Ferdinand ruled from 1746 to 1759 uh, and was succeeded by his half-brother, the illustrious Charles III. Charles III is really interesting. He doesn't have the same name recognition, at least in the English-speaking world, as some of his contemporaries. You know, Americans know the Georges in Britain, or at very least, George III. Right. We know the Louis in France. Frederick the Great is in Prussia around this time. Catherine the Great is in Russia around this time. 
But Charles III actually did quite a bit to strengthen Spain's position and give her something of a second wind. He's, you you could consider him one of the more successful monarchs of the age uh, with what he did with this empire and trying to stabilize it. One of his big focuses was the re-centralization of governing power. Mm -hmm. One of the side effects kind of of the the empire losing its its grip on places was the reliance on local government instead of central government. So you had seen a lot of the power going to basically not full-blooded Spanish people, not what they wanted. So Charles III wanted to reestablish that really firm grip. This included restricting a lot of government offices to those born in Spain rather mm-hmm. than leaving them open to, you know, like the Criollo population, people who were of mixed descent. He wanted Spanish people in charge of these things. I don't know if you know this, but I'll ask. We can cut this if we don't need it. Um, was there more mixing of actual Spanish people and indigenous people in like the Spanish colonies versus what happened in the English colonies? It was pretty common. There was basically like three levels of, ex- and I'm very, I'm oversimplifying this. This is not something I've read on extensively, but you basically had the European class, you know, people who were born in Spain, both of your parents were born in Spain, you had lineage in Spain, you were Spanish, you just happened to be in the New World. Mm-hmm. That's kind of your top tier. Those are the kind of people that Charles III wants governing his territories. You have the people who are Spanish by descent, but born in the New World. Criollo, mm-hmm. that kind of inherently knocks you down a peg. You're not technically from Spain. You were born in Peru. You were born in New Spain. Um, so you're kind of already a not quite top class citizen. And then, of course, you have the you know mixed race citizens who are obviously even lower down. Interesting. Yeah. So he's he's sounds very bad when you put it this way, and it kind of is trying to kind of purify that power structure, saying, I, <laughs> I only want Spanish people doing this. Which um, I guess, I mean, is a natural part of any colonization project, right? Like that, right. that tends to happen. The idea that they're going to be more loyal to me rather than their local interests. Mm-hmm. Spain at this point was still bringing in lots of precious metals from her American colonies, namely gold, silver, and copper. Interesting. So, you know, since the 1500s, they've been going at it and they still haven't run out of stuff. I think I like the earnestness of a lot of the conquistadors and stuff of like, do you have gold? Where is the gold? Like that's <laughs> like, they don't make any like contention, you know, or like, you know, like try to pretend there's something that they aren't like, it's just like, yeah, where's the gold at? We they want just want to know where the gold. At. Give me the gold. Pizarro got him a backhoe and uprooted that tree. <laughs> I hope that someone out there gets that reference. So getting into the incident here. Let's talk about a ship. We have a long incident segment here again, with many branching areas. San Pedro de Alcantara set sail from Peru in late 1784. I wasn't really able to find a more precise date. Everything just listed 1784. I feel like back then, everything's kind of a vibe, right? Sometime in there. Uh, She was bound for Cadiz in Spain, or Cadiz, for our Spanish listeners. Again, presumably sailing from Lima, that's not explicitly noted anywhere. Uh, Cadiz, her destination, is on Spain's southern Atlantic coast, just west of the Strait of Gibraltar. Cadiz comes up, any if you read anything in the you know, 15, 16, 17, 1800s, Cadiz is always a massive uh, area for the Spanish fleets. Uh, God, that is such a long voyage. Like I'm looking at it on the map. 
So yeah, that trip from Peru to Spain would require them to sail south around Cape Horn and then back north across the Atlantic. Um, As we learned in the documentary uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, or Bounty, uh, sailing around the Cape uh, Horn is not easy. Uh, Captain Bly would have loved this. Yes, he would have. So San Pedro de Alcantara is heavily laden with all of those precious metals, the gold, the silver, the copper. And I mean heavily laden, heavily, heavily laden. To be fair, there's no stability test to pass. So unlike most of the vessels, they didn't have to fake it. Exactly. Uh, There's an estimated 600 tons of copper, 153 tons of silver, and four tons of gold. I my favorite thing about these big units of measurement is that at a certain point they just lose any meaning. Like what is six hundred tons? Mm-hmm. Like what does that even mean? Like how much is that? Yeah, it's a lot. To put that a different way, in terms of weight, this is around twice what a ship of her size would normally be carrying. Hmm, seems safe to me. Most of that silver was minted into pieces of eight. You know the classic pirate yar me pieces of eight. So-called because they were worth eight Spanish reales. It's so weird to have like your monetary system based around the number eight. It is very odd. I, I don't know not, why that particular number was chosen. but Yeah, it's just weird. Like, it's not like a round number. Mm-hmm. We should have an $8 bill. Who would be on the $8 <laughs> bill? Uh, That feels like Grant. That feels like something he'd get. He's already on the 50, though. Uh, he is, isn't he? God. Franklin Pierce. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter on the Jimmy $8 Carter bill. on the eight dollar bill. Go. Yeah, there you go. Love it. We'll make it happen. Can we print money on the Teespring store? We can give it a go. We can make some. Is that illegal? Uh, breaker bucks. They convert into shroot bucks. Uh, so as you just mentioned, this is kind of back in the days when loading parameters are just vibes. Um, if it looks good, go with it. Or like, hey, we found more gold than we thought from raiding this village. So like, let's let's just bring it all. And again, even if there were more strict guidelines, there's no independent party to enforce them. If the government, if right. the king says this stuff is going to be on this ship, it's going to be on the ship. I would also assume there's some financial incentive to most people involved to like bring as much as you can. Yeah. Also, if you if you look at the time, that also plays a role. I didn't include this in the notes, but it did come up in most of the sources. Uh, You know, this is 1784. This is just after the end of hostilities in the American colonies uh, for Britain. So Britain has stopped shutting down trade along the Atlantic coast. So Spain has a lot more people to trade with. So there's a lot more activity going on there. So in addition to all those precious metals, there's other treasures on board in the forms of uh, in the form of ceramics from the Chimu culture of Peru as well as plant specimens collected by the botanists Hippolito Ruiz and Jose Antonio Pavon, who I had never heard of, but I guess they're pretty well known in the field of botany uh, for being some of the first people to systematically collect uh, these specimens, or first Europeans to systematically collect and document these, uh, these specimens. So there was also, on the more sinister, well, even more sinister side of things, some human cargo, on this ship traveling in chains not slaves per se but rather prisoners (laughs) it's always great when it's like they're they're not technically slaves um so these uh 20 or so prisoners were taken during the recent tupac amaru rebellion Uh, this was an uprising of the native andean population against spanish rule the leader of the rebellion uh jose gabriel condor canqui 
he had claimed descent from Tupac Amaru uh, via his mother's side. Tupac Amaru was the final ruler of the Neo Inca state. So after the the Inca state that you're thinking about mm-hmm. falls during you know Pizarro's conquest, there's kind of a rump state that spins off of that that exists for quite some time after. The real Inca Empire, the provisional Inca Empire. Provisional Tawantinsuyu. <laughs> Why are they all wearing black balaclavas? <laughs> um, the final leader of that was named Tupac Amaru. So this individual this uh, in the 1700s took on that name to identify more closely with this person that he was you know, descended from um, to be identified as a member of the Inca royal line. Mm-hmm. Tupac Amaru II uh, and much of his family had been captured and executed in 1781. Wow, that really shows you the Spanish stance on all of this. Yeah, and there's details about it. It's all pretty horrendous stuff. Torture and execution is uh, still a extremely brutal, barbaric thing here. Um, you can read all about it online if you choose to. I didn't include the details here. One of the prisoners on board the San Pedro was Tupac Amaru's youngest son, Fernando. Fernando had been present for his father's execution. He was made to watch the whole thing. So he's having a pretty horrendous time. And it's about to get worse. <laughs> it really is. Since we're talking about the Inca here a little bit, to get more familiar with that, you know, they have such a long and fascinating history. Check out the History of the Inca podcast, or I think it's called A History of the Inca. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an absolutely amazing podcast, mainly because that's a story that Americans don't really get told. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. I'll have to look at that. We learn about the Inca exclusively in the context of the conquistadors. Yeah, um, like we, we learn a little bit about the empire itself, but it's it's only as, you know, a prequel to, hey, like here's Pizarro. Um, we we kind of only see them at their worst, you know, right. when they're ra- racked by, you know, disease and civil war and then ultimately foreign conquest. That show is really cool because it goes deep into like the some of the precursor cultures mm-hmm. that sort of made up those same areas. It's really great. I'm not super far into it. I think I've listened to like. 12 or 13 episodes of it. Um, sort of bringing that back to my, one of my media items there. The Earth is Weeping does a good job of that too, of establishing like, you know, some of these bands and tribes of native, native peoples have histories to go back thousands of years. Like mm-hmm. their history doesn't begin when, you know, they kill Custer at little right. Bighorn. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's interesting. Cause that's, we only get these snapshots. And like you said, mm-hmm. we kind of only see them at their worst, but you know, that there are these civilizations full of culture and religion and, you know, these traditions. And it is interesting getting a fuller picture of that. Yeah. I said at their worst. I guess I probably meant at their lowest. Right. Yeah. And it's the same, you know, when we learn about you learn about the Aztecs in school, that's so you can learn about Hernan Cortez and, you know, how Mexico became Mexico. Um, It's it's not taught there there's there's really no value placed on the civilizations themselves they kind of exist just as a foil to europeans yeah there's not a lot of agency given to the native peoples and i do find that interesting reading more about them and stuff mm-hmm. and you know they had decisions and reasons for things that they did it's not mm-hmm. just happening in a vacuum right so check out the history of the inca so back to our ship the ship we're talking about here during that trip around the horn san pedro de alcantara leaked constantly and leaked heavily Hmm. both things that i love in my ships um 
She was forced to stop for repairs first in Talcahuano, modern day Chile. So not a super huge distance from Lima to Talcahuano. That's not far at all. We actually mentioned Talcahuano way back in our episode on the Angamos. That's where that uh, naval base was. uh, That was kind of central to that story. So the storm that put her in need of repairs off the coast of Chile. Do you remember those the the botanical samples? Yes. All the live ones got washed overboard. Ah, so it was sort of like that scene in Bounty when they toss all the plants overboard. Yes. Yeah, except they weren't throwing them overboard. Except nature did that. Right. So those are all gone. Uh, There were still some dried specimens that remained safe, presumably stored somewhere, which is what I don't understand about the live ones being washed overboard. It's like, were were they storing them just out on deck? I feel like it's one of those things where the crew just didn't care. And there was the the two (laughs) botanists that cared. And just everyone's like, yeah, we're not help. We're not messing with the plants, man. Like, we got stuff to do. We don't care about the plants. These two nerds gave us these plants to take (laughs) care of. I don't know. Put it put it on deck somewhere. I don't care. You know, even the captain was like, I don't care about your plants. I'm I sorry. could not care less. <laughs> What's your name? Why are you here? And to clarify, the two botanists were not on the ship. Just mm. their, their stuff was. All the more reason that no one cared about those plants. Yeah, who cares? So after rounding the horn, she needed further significant maintenance. Uh, she had to put into Rio de Janeiro after she continued taking on water. Wow, she is just visiting all the hot spots in South America. Well, also, I'm assuming she probably would have stopped at Rio de Janeiro anyway, mm-hmm. if if nothing else, just for provisions before crossing the Atlantic. Are are they on friendly terms with the Portuguese at this time? Like, is that cool? Like, just chilling in Rio for a little bit? Yeah, they're friendly at this point. the The thing is here, whether she would have been struggling so much if she was less heavily laden is is kind of anyone's guess. I, I feel like it wouldn't hurt. Right, like less, you, less it, it couldn't couldn't make it worse. She wasn't particularly old mm-hmm. compared to other ships. You know, she's about 15, 16 years old at this point. Looking at a list of Spanish ships from the time, you know, when they were constructed, when they were taken out of service, it's kind of difficult to calculate a good expected service time just due to the large number of ships that are either wrecked, lost in combat, or intentionally scuttled. So they won't be taken in combat. I feel like you also probably have massive variability in like quality of manufacture. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're not, there's no standardized processes in any of this. So it's like, mm-hmm. how good did Jose hammer in that, you know, stave or whatever? Like, right. you know what I mean? Like you're at the mercy of who's putting it together. Right. And also, I mean, like you said, standardization, you got to assume that a ship being constructed in Cuba is by nature of things, probably not being built on the same parameters as something built in Spain. Right. Yeah. Just just fewer eyes watching everything. So, yeah, like I, I just kind of quickly looked through this list. I, I was kind of focusing on ships that in my notes are referred to as, you know, dying of natural causes, um, you know, just <laughs> reaching the end of their life, being broken up, being taken out of service, retired, whatever. You see service times of, you know, 20, 30 years for, for these ships, some of them even up to 40, 50. Those are kind of isolated cases. But, you know, point being. San Pedro de Alcantara wasn't leaking because she was super, super old. Right. So, you know, while it was a long time ago and she was sailing in salt water, you know, with adequate maintenance, she could have still been seaworthy, you know, under normal conditions. But as we've seen, these were not normal conditions. She's got way too much stuff in her. So San Pedro de Alcantara got back underway, leaving Rio de Janeiro in early 1786. So remember, she left in 1784. 
1786 now, and she's still just on the other side of South America. I think that's one thing that I thought about a lot when we watched um, The Bounty. The timeline of so many of these stories from this time period, are it's so long. Mm-hmm. Like, you've, you've got people who are spending large chunks of their lives on these expeditions and, and at sea and stuff like that. And it's just so different than you think about two years in, in our lives now, and it's so different than two years in somebody's life back then. So... I wasn't able to find any details about her actual crossing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm assuming her captain's log was not recovered from what we're about to talk about. <laughs> you know, so how quickly she progressed, none of that is is totally known. I would assume it's safe to say it wasn't the most pleasant trip, just off what we know. Presumably not. The only thing we do know is where she was on the night of February 2nd, 1786. Wow, that's a really specific date. What happens next? Uh, so at this point, she's just off the Portuguese coast near the town of Peniche, uh, which is about 50 miles north of Lisbon. Okay. The weather was fair and the seas were calm. Hmm, sounds like a good uh, good night to be sailing. So despite that good sailing weather, right around 1030 p.m., the San Pedro de Alcantara struck a rock while she was moving at a speed of about six knots. Yeah, you really don't want to do that. The impact was so violent that she broke in two at the waterline along her horizontal axis. Wow. So by that, I mean the top decks and lower decks coming apart from one another. <laughs> and I, I'm i assuming this is only like a partial thing. I, I can't imagine the whole ship just like sliding in half. Maybe that's right. what happened. I don't know. That's how the sources describe it is basically her, her top portions and her bottom portions separating from each other. I mean, really bad either way, right? Like, not, not a yeah, great time. Yeah, really. It, it would just be a very weird way for, for it to sink compared to what we normally see when a ship breaks into its normally front and back. <laughs> um, not top and bottom. So I guess, you know, along a similar line to sometimes how we see the pilot house torn off of a ship and it continues floating. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the Myron effect. Right. The lower decks reportedly sank immediately <laughs> uh, with the upper decks and rigging staying afloat for some time. Because that's where all the gold and copper was. Right. Um, I imagine that sank really fast. What kind of ballast you got there? Copper. Mostly gold. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly copper and gold. Those aboard, obviously, those that could, made for the safety of the shore, which really wasn't far away. I mean, this is right Mm. off the coast. But also a really treacherous area. As we kind of talked about with our episode on the Cason, the one where there was that kind of chemical spill concern uh, off of Cape Finisterre, that west coast of Iberia is extremely rocky. There's tons and tons and tons of shipwrecks. And we'll share some pictures of it. And, you know, this part of the coast is no different. There's tons of rocks that will rip the bottom out of a ship, even one that's not really moving, you know, super, super fast and in pretty calm conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, even if you got off the ship, making it to shore probably wasn't that easy. Right. Ultimately, there were around 270 survivors, with 128 reportedly killed in the sinking, most of those via drowning. A couple things. That's actually way more survivors than I was expecting. Mm -hmm. I just feel like normally it doesn't play out like that. And second off, do we have a horse count? It's a horse situation. No, but I'm assuming there was probably at least one. No mention of horses. 
Yeah, I was kind of the same way. And, and I'm assuming it's because it was so close to the coast is why there's mm-hmm. so many survivors. Maybe some of them were getting nervous. They realized they were getting too close to the coast and were kind of prepping for this. So if you remember, there was those 20 or so prisoners that were on board. Yes. Uh, 17 of those died in the sinking. I can't imagine your odds were very good. <laughs> no, I mean, as hard as it would be to escape for anyone, I have to imagine that the people who are on board in chains, you probably have next to zero chance of, of escaping. Well, in like best case scenario, you don't have any chains, but you're still locked up. Like if mm-hmm. the ship's going down, like who's going to stop? And like, oh, yeah, the prisoners. Let's go let them out and let them run around. Yeah, I doubt that there was a lot of concern for their well-being there when it ran aground. Uh, one of those who survived, however, was Fernando, the son of Tupac Amaru II. Interesting. I do find that interesting. Again, this is all total conjecture why he would have survived. Maybe he was either held somewhere different or he was paid more attention to because he was the highest profile prisoner on board. Yeah, I guess there is some incentive in keeping him alive, at least compared to like a a common prisoner or something. If you were going to go through the effort of sending him across the Atlantic rather than just executing him, presumably there would have been some incentive to make sure that he survived this. Yeah. Uh, However, after being recovered by the Spanish authorities, he was imprisoned and he died several years later in captivity. Of course. Yeah. So that's the sad story of the San Pedro de Alcantara. We do have a a good bit of stuff to discuss in the aftermath, though, here. Mm -hmm. So the first of those is the recovery efforts. So as soon as the news of the sinking reached the Spanish government, efforts were undertaken to recover what could be found of the ship's cargo. This is a lot of gold and silver and copper that they don't want to lose. Also, they're just like, what's the process for recovering something at this time period? Like, I don't know. I don't even know how you go about that. We we get into a team of divers here soon. Oh, really? Yeah. So given the importance of the cargo, wanted to get this handled well and quickly, Charles III dispatched Carlos José Gutiérrez de los Ríos, the Count of Fernán Núñez, to the wreck site to oversee the recovery operations. Did it feel good to say it that way? It felt pretty good. <laughs> uh, so the reason for this, you know, haste that's being shown here was just the pure amount that was being carried on board. Right. The silver, gold, and copper on board amounted to an estimated 10% of Spain's economic value that was in circulation at the time. I- I'm trying to picture a scenario where, like, the U.S. has 10% of its economy, like, on one ship. We lost 10% of the economy. It's gone. <laughs> And it's weird to think that like so like losing 10% of the econ- of the economy not cuz like something bad happened on the computer. Right. Literally a ship sank with all of our stuff on it. Right. It's gone. Uh lines going down just like that ship did. I'm just imagining though like everyone freaking out in the equivalent of like the stock market floor of everyone <laughs> just like pulling their hair out and then like two little botanists in the corner just like like hey um do do, do you know if do you know if the samples are this did the, did the samples survive? <laughs> my samples. Where are my samples? Where are my samples? <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of interesting. There was something of an international effort here with around 40 divers from all over Europe arriving to assist in salvaging the cargo. Everybody's trying to get some of that sweet, sweet Inca gold. 
this seems this is like a very modern seeming thing here to like have you know this diving team assembled like we we've talked about that in episodes before where if a country doesn't have the equipment or the people from surrounding countries will will come and and help out there was more of an effort made to rescue this gold than there was to rescue the sailors on the kursk yeah yeah no no joke so that assembled group of divers managed to recover almost all of the sunken treasure that is absolutely astonishing at this time and like I didn't see any hard numbers for like the depth they're diving at here, but presumably like manageable. Right. And yeah, I don't know that much about the strategies involved in diving at the time. Presumably just a lot of people who can hold their breath. That or like, I don't know, some sort of a hose to the surface. I don't Maybe. I'm not super well versed on diving stuff, so I have no idea. This is probably easy stuff to figure out. Um, I didn't have time to look into it, though. So in addition to the treasure that was recovered, um, and again, that was over the span of about three years. So this wasn't right. like they you know, pulled up a big chest and they were done. So what we're saying is they would have eventually gotten to the sailors on the Kursk. It wouldn't have been timely necessarily. But they got <laughs> right, there. right. They also did recover many of the bodies uh, of those who were killed in the wreck. A tale as old as time on this podcast. Those that were recovered were subsequently buried on shore. Some of the recovered treasure would actually be lost Again, Mm -hmm. when the ship that was carrying it from Paniche to Cadiz, that ship was called El Bencejo, uh, it also sank, killing 92. So maybe it's bad karma to take people's gold. I mean, that's some full on final destination stuff. (laughs) Like, you just weren't meant to have that gold. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I wasn't able to find out, like, what happened to it after that. Like, was it recovered again? I genuinely hope there is some incan priest or priestess just like laughing yes you know what i mean just like i got him again yes <laughs> oh man but yeah uh, multiple shipwrecks here uh, another person worth mentioning here is uh the french painter jean pilmont uh, so along with that uh that count of fernand nunez that i referred to earlier this french painter also visited the wreck site he was kind of tight with the royal court so he was sort of tagging along from this event he was inspired to make several sketches and paintings uh, some depicting the salvage efforts and others imagining the wreck itself there's a cool article about him that i found kind of tracks the development of his art and particularly focuses on his his maritime themes and his shipwrecks in his later work ah so some of the later surveys so basically after all of the valuable stuff was taken they kind of just forgot about it They didn't really care to salvage anything else as long as they got the gold and silver and stuff off. Mm -hmm. So the wreck of the San Pedro de Alcantara was a pretty big deal, even though the worst of the financial impact was mostly averted. There are about 40,000 references to this event in the uh, Archivo de las Indias in Sevilla, basically just the big record of Spain's conquests in the New World um, and like all of their financial stuff. So this is a massive deal at the time, right? Like this is this is pretty important. Yeah, and like those references could be anything. Like it, it could just be like a hey, remember when this happened, basically. Or it could be like an accounting thing. It could be any number of reasons it's being referred to. And I just want to be clear, is this just a record of them doing colonizer stuff? It's like a whole building um with all of the records and i mean it's even got stuff like you know first-hand accounts like journal entries from 
a lot of the big name conquistadors and stuff you can think of, you know, with Columbus and Cortez and Pizarro, all of the all the you know big names that we know. One of the reasons that we know those things is because they're all concentrated in this one area. You know, these these records that were kept, you know, financial records, a- a- anything you can imagine that went into the the gears of government is is here. And yeah, it's it's just a building you can go to. It's in Sevilla. It's kind of close to like where the where like the cathedral is in Sevilla. So, I guess I pose to you. Is this any different than like the financial stuff that like Auschwitz or somewhere? Probably not in its in in terms of its like base function. I guess it's probably a, a bit more focused on the finances, but no, I would I, I don't know. I just feel like we're like tracking the genocide that we're doing. It's just further away. Basically, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, people recording their crimes in uh, in fine detail. Because it's one of those things where you're like, oh, wow, the Spanish had so much gold. I wonder where they got that from. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the things. Honestly, um, being in the cathedral in Sevilla in Spain when I was there in high school, mm-hmm. and you see all of this gold inside this cathedral. And it looks cool, but then immediately you're thinking, I know where this came from. Right. Like, yeah, this is, this is not, this is not conflict free uh, gold. Yeah. This is not ethically sourced gold here <laughs> on the, the tomb of Columbus, <laughs> um, the alleged tomb of Columbus. Right. So this wreck remained in the oral history of the Peniche region in Portugal for centuries. Finally, in the late 1980s through 1999, new surveys of the wreck site were conducted in order to discover, you know, what remained at the ship, any treasure, any objects of historical significance. So I'm reading a quote here from one of my sources. The sea bottom consists of irregular rocks where cavities and cracks are filled with stone and sand. Almost all finds consist of small objects spread over a large area and located in such cavities. Any object laying openly on the sea bottom would have been destroyed or washed away by the violent sea. It's also difficult to distinguish San Pedro artifacts from the remains of the steamer Joao Diogo, which sank on the same spot in 1963. So you have a little bit of wreck site contamination here because you have another ship that sunk directly on top of it. It's always fun when there's there's two wrecks, you know, Mm -hmm. two wrecks, one spot. The objects that have been discovered on the site, uh, those are mostly broken pottery some bits of iron and lead, one bar of copper. (laughs) I'm assuming the initial salvage did a really good job of, of sweeping for that. But like you see, like on the news and stuff, you'll see like, you know, 500 bars of Spanish gold found off the coast of Florida. What is the, the asking price for one bar of copper? Like there still has to be some value there, right? Like that's still a historical object. Yeah. And, I mean, I've looked on eBay before. You can buy like Spanish silver reales for not that much money. Like, there's just so many of them in circulation. Really? Yeah, they're like they're not that hard to come by. Um, I just don't know how I feel about buying such a cursed object. <laughs> but like, I do want one. Yeah the the largest single object recovered was one of the vessel's swivel guns. Mm-hmm. On a kind of related note, some pieces of grape shot were also recovered. I guess for those not in the know, a swivel gun is a kind of a small cannon or a big shotgun. Depending on how you look at it. (laughs) That's a great way of describing that. We talked about it when we talked about the Mary Rose 
those obviously used more for like anti-personnel combat, you know, repelling borders and such. God, how often do you think someone was bored as like, well, there's a seagull over there. I mean, better than the Scapa Flow Boys where you had to make your own seagull gun. <laughs> Um, so in parallel with these underwater finds, the grave sites of some of those killed in the wreck were also first found in 1986. Osteological analysis was able to determine which of the remains were of European descent and which would have been the Peruvian prisoners. Interesting. The European skeletons were found buried in individual graves, while the Peruvian dead were thrown into a common grave, many of them still with chains around their ankles. I'd like to say that I'm shocked, but like, I'm yeah. not. I mean, that's a detail that truly I that like captures the kind of the dehumanization mm-hmm. that's going on in this situation where even the communal grave, it's like, OK, maybe you didn't know their names, whatever. But like the fact you didn't bother to take the chains off. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's kind of like the ultimate indignity is keeping control of the body even after the person has died. Yeah, that's um. I wish I was surprised. That's a very sad note to end it on, but I think it, it really also, is. It's also probably the most salient point of the mm-hmm. whole of the whole story, right? Just kind of the inherent difference in the value of human life here. Mm-hmm. Especially to to think that you could have like just survived something as harrowing as that and then still hold on to your your prejudices there. Right. That's a sad way to end it, but that's where we're going to end it cuz that's all I've got. Final thoughts on the San Pedro del Alcantara. Um, I guess the only other thing I'll say about this one, I just still can't get over the recovery part of it. Like they had a more effective recovery operation than like half of the stories we talk about in modern times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they I, really I think did. That's that's truly interesting. Like I may have to look up like diving in the 1770s. Like what does that consist of? I would imagine that there's some like hefty financial rewards for finding the king of spain's gold like you're gonna be well compensated if you can find it i would think especially if you're talking about this being 10 percent of spain's economy it's like even if you get 10 percent of that that's a lot of money well also just spitballing here i'm assuming that a lot of this was probably like in chests and stuff like that so it was probably just a matter of going down there getting a hook on it and dragging it out yeah i would imagine if you found some you found a lot uh, like SpongeBob's jellyfish nets, just going down and scooping up, <laughs> just scooping this pieces of eight. I don't know. This is interesting. This is a good change of pace. We haven't done an older one in a while, so it is. You know, I think it's always a little different when we do an older one. Like we say, it's a little bit easier to make some jokes. It's a little bit easier to have fun with it, but also we can draw out some pretty big conclusions. You know, it, it's funny how this stuff always ties together. Um, you see some of the same overarching things. You know, the the kind of uh, willingness to flaunt safety things. Clearly, like people knew that this ship was overloaded. You know, like, you know, even without strict stability testing and all that, you know. But also, just how it ties into so many other things we talk about. Like, you know, even with the books we're reading, with um, the Native American stuff. Like, this story isn't any different than what happens later on to the Plains Indians and stuff like that. Uh, again, you're seeing a major European power or something that came from a European power extract wealth and everything else from a native people. And it's interesting. It really is a tale as, as old as time. So it's, it's always interesting how that all connects together. That's a good point also. And I think we touched on it briefly, but we talk about like the Spanish conquest of America or the Americas and, and, and not just Spain, you know, every European 
colonial power. And you kind of learn about it as if there's this great initial shock and then things kind of settle down. But the idea that, you know, this is this is 200 getting close to 300 years after, you know, the conquest of Mexico, the conquest of Peru, and you still have these native uprisings. So like that spirit hasn't died. You still right. have Spain being incredibly brutal towards those and still extracting resources after all that time. So it is it is a much longer and more terrible process even than it's taught. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, back to your point about like the, the sinking itself, this was a calm, pleasant night, very, you know, very calm seas, no storms. If this ship isn't massively overloaded, there's basically no reason it would sink. Right. The The only logical reason that it ran aground was because it was too hard to control. It's It's very interesting. That's, I guess, the maritime lesson to take from it. And I think, you know, it's one thing I like about what we do. And I'm talking about especially older ones. I love that it doesn't have to always just be about the shipwreck. Like none of these shipwrecks that we talk about happen in isolation. You have to sometimes understand like the world that happens around it and what leads up to it, what causes it, you know, what are the motivations? And in this case, the motivation is 100% pure extraction of profit. Mm-hmm. You're willing to operate this vessel unsafely. People aren't going to question it because it's an absolute monarchy. And the king says, bring me my gold. <laughs> when the ship sinks, the king says, go get my gold. It's just very interesting seeing how all that plays out. And it's so interesting how shipwrecks and their stories can kind of be so, you know, such an example of the times that they happen in. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that very interesting that you can look at, you know, something like the Alfaro and realize, well, it happened because of profit. It had that vessel had to get to Puerto Rico. The captain felt pressured to do that and he made bad decisions. And how is that any different than what happened here? That's a good point. It's the same thing. So, you know, as much as things change, they truly do stay the same. And it is so interesting that, you know, how shipwrecks are illustrative of that fact that at the end of the day, like we always say, they're human stories. Every mm-hmm. shipwreck is a human story. So I, f- I find that interesting in a, in a situation like this. It's really cool and interesting to see how a shipwreck this old can be paralleled in the modern world. Yeah. It's like shipwrecks are just a lens into the, the society that they happen in. And overall humans don't really change that much. Yeah. That is super interesting. You know, this is not the most technical wreck that we've talked about, Mm. but that doesn't matter. I think it's, it's the fact that these human stories and everything are so timeless. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Well, I think that'll put a wrap on this one. Um, We'll be back next week with some more stuff here. Uh, Uh, The only other thing we'll put it at the end here. Send us your questions. Email us. Send us Twitter DMs. We want to know your questions. We're going to do a Q&A episode to celebrate 50,000 downloads. Um, So the sooner you get those in, the sooner we can do that episode. Um, I think we've got a couple already. I've seen from a few people, but uh, definitely keep those coming. Um, It doesn't have to be shipwreck related. Don't be weird. That's the only that's the only rule. Other than that, uh, ask away. We'll we'll do a Q and A. We'll have some fun with it, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Cool. All right then. Uh, until next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. We love hearing from listeners, and if you'd like to get in touch with us. There's a couple of ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. 
We're on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon set up for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, covers things like web hosting fees, research materials, the occasional hardware upgrade to keep the show sounding as good as possible. We appreciate all of the support in any way it comes. The simplest way to support the show is just to listen and share it with your friends. Other ways to support the show include leaving ratings and reviews. Ratings and reviews really help us. They help the show stay visible. They help more people find the show and they make us feel good. So any of those ways you can support the show is greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care.